Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today I've got with me Brian Gilbert. Hello, Brian. Hi, Stuart. It's good now, to be with you. Thank you very much. Now, you're on to talk about, um, I guess, I guess, um, in cinematic terms, a, a sort of modern classic, really. Um, the film Tom and Viv that you directed is be, has been digitally remastered and is being issued for the first time. Is that is that right? Yes, yes, for some reason, for years, the rights were tied up and we couldn't get hold of it. And uh, so, yeah, you know, this happens in the life of movies. Yeah. And it, it can be very dismaying and disheartening to the movie makers. I can, I can imagine, I can imagine. But obviously, nicely timed for, uh, for the holiday period. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's purely fortuitous, but still, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sure, I'm sure. Um, now, um, do you want to give a brief synopsis as to what Tom and Viv is for those people that don't know? Well, Tom and Viv uh, was originally a stage play um, uh, written by Michael Hastings. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like an obscure sort of story. It was based on the marriage, the life of T.S. Eliot, um, you know, a great uh, English Anglo-American poet who was uh, hugely uh, admired and loved in the early 20th century, but remains one of the great masters. Um, and his marriage was very much hidden from, uh, from the biography or the story. Not much had been written about T.S. Eliot's biography. Yeah. And uh, Michael Hastings uncovered, in many ways, this first uh, marriage of his, which was um, a disastrous, catastrophic, tragic, amazing relationship that he had with a woman from the upper middle class, Vivian Haigwood, uh, uh, who in her own way was quite a remarkable, talented, gifted woman, mm. but was afflicted by what in those days women's troubles, meaning she had highly irregular periods, which also caused her quite a lot of pain. The medication for which, in those days, um, was worse than the was worse than the affliction itself, and made her um, mentally extremely volatile. This relationship lasted many many years and fed into, in many ways, or Michael Hastings claimed, his great poetry. She had a lot to do with his work, not in terms of actually writing stuff but in participating, in helping him co-edit things, in being the first one to read his work. And out of this relationship, this relationship um, uh, paralleled the writing of some of his most revered and famous work, and yet was eliminated, as it were, from the biography. The, the disastrous ending to this relationship was that uh, Vivian got increasingly volatile and Eliot eventually had her put away in an asylum. Hmm. And in those days, and this is, we're talking about simply the fact that she had highly irregular periods, but she was put away on the grounds of moral insanity, a category that is laughable now and is in itself quite tragic that so many women were incarcerated uh, involuntarily um, for a category of illness that we would regard as as non-existent. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of the the, the the way it's the way it's shown in the film, it's it's almost like she's been committed because she's a bit embarrassing in public, and high society yes. doesn't like that. Yes, I mean, I wouldn't say you know there was, I, I wouldn't say that she was easy to live with, and that there were um, no grounds for considering her a very difficult personality at times of her life, particularly at these periods of acute medication when she was dealing with the issue. Mm of the irregular periods but yes uh, essentially we would probably say now I think universally that there were no no real grounds to incarcerate her now now let me say this is this is a, a, a digitally remastered version so let's let's go back to when you made this movie so we're talking yeah. about 1994 yeah. when it's original release um, so you would have shot this on what we was shot it's... this on super 35 okay and so the, when you when you've shot it in the analog form, when you come to this process digitally mastered, is is it a simple process? Is it a complicated well, process? You know, I, I've had I've had nothing to do with the digital digital remastering at this okay. stage. I mean, yeah. um, you know, I, I I had going back anything that was involved then for television broadcast and so on. I was intimately involved in those processes, mm. processes. But no, the recent digital remastering, I think, um, I'm pretty sure Mark Samuelson, the producer, had a lot to do with it. But, uh, our, you know, our lives were, were too complicated or busy at the time, and I, I had nothing to do with that. So when, but when you see, well, all right, when you see the finished digital remastered format then, yeah. what, what, do you, what has it lent to the piece that wasn't there before, as it were? Well, I, I, I hope simply that it will, it will um, mirror, you know, as it were, an almost virgin print. Mm. So I hope that it will reflect the quality of the cinematography as was, you know. Yeah. I, I, I hope that there is n nothing, no, as it were, quality added. It doesn't mm. require it, oh, yeah, as yeah, I yeah, think yeah. every filmmaker would say. No, yeah, no, because I mean, I know from from experience, from, from from sort of experience, I know from talking to filmmakers who deal in the analog when they shoot, but obviously yeah. post-produce in digital, which essentially means you and, and music's the same. You record analog and put it into yeah. a digital format, and then you edit. You know, that seems to be a very sure. modern approach to the art yeah. to these art forms. Um, but yeah, no, that's, that's a, just a, just thought I'd ask because it's, it's just often when 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 I've, I've sit, covered stories about history masters, it's where you know it's there's something happened that needed to fix to uh, be fixed. Yeah, yeah. well, uh, and of course with certain different kinds of movies, especially movies with effects and so on, mm. then then that process can be a real enhancement and correction. Mm. But in 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 um, relatively naturalistic dramatic films with uh, minimal effects, then uh, you're looking really to mirror the original quality. Mm. No, and, and I've, I've watched the Blu-ray on my HD TV and it looks, it does look stunning. Um, yeah, right, I'm very pleased to hear that because I haven't seen it yet. Oh, have you not? No, okay, no, okay. I know. No, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it, they're sending me. Cool, cool. So, so let's let's. I just want to go back, if I may, Stuart. On sure, the, sure. On the story, it sounds like an obscure story, but actually, it's the relation. It's it's um, a story of uh, an amazing marriage and relationship, and what goes into the making of of work. Uh, you know, what's behind the fame and what's behind the celebrity. 
and what goes into the making of art. People often think of art as just as a kind of formal process that's not related to life. And in fact, Eliot had quite a lot to do with that idea that art is very impersonal. And it's true that art can have a very indirect relationship to life, but nevertheless, it feeds off life, absolutely. And I think that's what the film goes to show. Without a doubt, without a doubt, and also th th there was th th that beautiful struggle between because because in some senses Eliot's quite quite the pragmatist, you know. He he, is. he, yeah. he, he accepts that he maybe has to earn his corn, um, and yeah. so goes into banking because the poetry isn't going to necessarily pay the rent, despite the favours yeah. of Bertrand Russell and, and the like, yeah. um, <clears throat> and obviously Viv's Viv's standing in society and her parents' wealth or whatever. Um, yeah. it, but she's the one that's insistent that he he be just the artist, isn't she? She's the one, and, may, yes, and, that, she's and a that's terrific. Yes, she was a terrific supporter. But also, uh, she, also that she understood, she understood his work intuitively, and he was quite, in some ways, an enormously progressive art. You know, quite quite avant garde in his time, hmm. and not everyone would have had an instinct for what he was doing. You know, I think a lot of artists, it's it's. It's wonderful for an artist to find that immediate intuitive understanding of their work. That's the biggest support you can have. I guess so, but I think also with, with the mania that you sort of associated with, with Viv's character in the film, you get the yeah. sense that she, she kind of embodies the kind of um, the madness of trying to be creative. And almost like that's attention pulling in on pulling on Elliot too. You know, he kind of. Well, I, I, I absolutely. I think that was in many ways the bond between them. Mm. I mean, her state of mind and the the uh, the moods and aspects of modern life that are reflected in his work are very very connected. Once you know about Viv, the wasteland becomes a lot more intuitive to read in a way, you can feel it more. You realize that he could connect with the catastrophe of his time mm. through the catastrophe of his marriage in a peculiar way. I know it's not a one-on-one -on -one connection, not at all. But no, in no. a context way, he was living it in his own peculiar way, just as men at the front were in the First World War. And The Wasteland became the poem that expressed best of all that sense of desolation and futility that people felt at the end of the First World War. What was how familiar were you, I mean how familiar were you with the original stage play? Had you gone to see it? As, as, no, as the... I, I hadn't seen it. Of course, I read it and I met with Michael. Michael was a lovely man. Yeah, very interesting. And he was he was um, a writer who started very young, and um, in fact, the germ of this play for him was he was in New York. I think he was about nineteen, mm. and he was already working for the best theatre for modern plays in London at that time, which was the Royal Court Theatre. Mm. Um, and he met at a dinner party the remarkable English poet, who is actually in the movie, you know, represented in the movie, Edith Sitwell, mm. a, a fantastic English eccentric from the aristocracy, the British aristocracy, uh, who wrote very, you know, eccentric poems. Anyway, she was in her old age, and she was holding court, and Michael was with her, and at one point she said something about, she was talking about T.S. Eliot, or somebody mentioned T.S. Eliot in conversation, and she said, oh yes, there was a point at which, you know, T.S. Eliot was regarded as a god, she said, but, you know, uh, at one point at, at which in his life, you know, he went mad, and he had his wife locked away. Right. But, 
So it was that kind of extreme statement by this eccentric Edith Sitwell that was the germ of the play for Michael. And then he went away and researched it and then found, you know, what, what was also a, an injustice. And because women's issues were in the air at the time, Michael, I think, wrote that play out of the sense of the complexity of what goes into reputations. You know, we hear of the names and we read the poems and we're interested in the lives to make some connection, you know, that where we feel we can feel it on our pulses rather than it just being an intellectual exercise. And therefore that play germinated in him. So I read the play, hmm. um, but it first came to me as an early adaptation for the, for the screen written by Michael, um, by um, Adrian Hodges. Okay. And then we worked together a great deal on that. And, of course, I met with Michael as well. So Michael was somewhat a part of the process. I think we sent him drafts of the script, if I recall. I mean, it's, worth, it's probably worth pointing out to the layperson listening. It, it, as, as, as far as art forms go, the stage play is, a, is a really much a writer's medium. The screenplay yeah. is very much a director's medium. So, well, I would say the theatre is a writer's and actor's ah, okay, yes, actor's yes, yes. medium, whereas film, I think, is much more a director's medium as well as a, 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 an actor's medium. You know, but it's then the craft for everything to do with the, the mounting of a, of, a, of a film is through the director and his co-workers. You know, cinematographer and so on. So what, what, were the, what were the initial challenges in the sort of adapting that stage play to screen, as far as you remember? Well, there are, <laughs> there are, huge, uh, there are huge challenges. It's quite hard to um, reflect in detail. Mm. I mean, one of the things is, in, you know, in, in, in a play, the play world can make, language can act as a huge metaphor in a play. Right. You can stand on an empty stage, on a bare stage, and say, um, all the world's a state, you know, uh, oh, for a muse of fire that could ascend the brightest heaven of invention. Your, your, la your language can conjure up, think when we speak of horses that you see them. <laughs> you know? Uh, uh, and and uh, you can conjure up worlds through the words. Yeah. But on, on, if that were a film, all you see is a guy standing on a bare stage saying some eloquent things. Film is much more literal, realistic. Um, what you see is your clue to the inner life. Right. So, and therefore, um, you, can't, uh, you can't use language in the same way. Language in film is much more, is, is just part of the soundtrack, to, to put it at its most extreme. That's, that's a brilliant way of putting it, though. You know? <laughs> yeah. So, the, so you have to create character and theme and story through the action and behavior of your characters and the conflicts you create in the narrative. So it's the other way around. It's mm. the story and the action which is a clue to the character. Whereas on, on, on stage, I'm putting this very awkwardly. I'm sure there are much more, much more articulate ways of putting it, but on stage, it's through the language. No, Brian, Brian it's, it, it, to be honest with you, it, it's, I, I, I just simply like that comparison between how, on a stage, what is said and how it's performed can evoke something in imagination, whereas exactly. if you did exactly the same thing just in front of camera as, as part of a film, it would just literally be someone, like you say, 
stood on a stage saying something nice. Yes, yes. Where, whereas, and it's 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 the I mean it's the old adage, isn't it? About a, fi- a film is made is is show don't tell. And yes, I guess on and, a stage and, and, you can't. You're allowed to tell, aren't you? That's right. And the clue is, you know, in in in, in and it's in as in life that it's not what people say to you that counts. It's what they do and what's behind what they say. Mm. So in life, you're looking for clues to the inner reality of somebody, despite what they say. <laughs> and yeah, 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 so yeah. so um, in, in, in film, it's the same. You're looking to clues from what people do and from what people say and how people look and interact, how they live in the space and work and move and have their being. So it's a three-dimensional world, even though that's a bit of an illusion film, we have to create that sense of depth and illusion of the three dimensions. Well, we always, we're always looking to create subtext, aren't we, I suppose, in film? We are. That's right. That's it's the, right. It's and the invisible character in the room we're trying to create, the one that's in your head. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You know, as, as the viewer, you know, you're, you're, yes. you're translating what's going on. Um, so, in, in a sense, was... Because you're doing a film and it's bi- and it's a biopic, so you've also got that challenge too, haven't you? Which is you have, you've, yeah. you've got you've got facts versus drama. So you have, and I think, and, and that is a big responsibility because yeah. although you know you say you're making a movie, mm-hmm. that does not mean you've got no responsibility to the facts. Absolutely not. I think okay. you are constrained by your sense of history and the truth. But it's a lot, It's a broader sense of the truth. In other words, you've got to um, you've got to navigate navigate between. I, I mean, I used to think of it this way. Mm. There's a lot about uh, when you when you are, 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 are doing a story or, a, or you, when you're when you're creating a biography, which is factually trivial, but thematically significant, and you're always looking for what's <laughs> thematically significant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Factually trivial meaning. Do you have to have the actors look exactly like the characters? Let's just on one tiny level. Yeah. Do they have to wear exactly what the characters wore? Well, you know, I also made a film about Oscar Wilde. Mm-hmm. And just to give you an example, if you were to create, recreate the exact design of Oscar Wilde's house, which was uh, celebrated at the time as the most advanced and amazing example of elegance and interior decoration. When W.B. Yeats went to Wilde's house, he was absolutely overwhelmed by its beauty and elegance. Mm -hmm. But since that period, a lot of Wilde's designs, you know, which drew from William Morris and other things, have become the common currency of, of house design. It's in every suburb. You see a lot of this stuff. So to recreate the excitement of that design, you have to add to it. You cannot be literal. No, Otherwise, no, no. you're not respecting the imaginative life and the, the actual impact that it had on imaginations of people at the time. So do you, is, is there any specific... Can you, from Tom and Viv, can you remember any specifics where you, you sort of use... Sort of well, Tom and Viv is another story too because we the the, the play is in many ways um, it isolates its theme by exaggerating and ca- to some extent caricaturing or sending up some of the other characters in the play: Virginia Woolf, Edith Sitwell, 
uh, and so on, various other characters. So they are not um, historically accurately or truthfully rendered. They are rendered in a high style, mm. you know, in an almost comedic style. Now, we drew on that, but I made it somewhat more real, but it's still some of those characters, in the nature of the way the drama goes, sit in the film, I think, um, acceptably as, as an aspect of um, the way Eliot or Viv saw them, rather than as they were in actuality. I'm not trying to do a biographical film of Virginia Woolf. Or no. make Otterline Murrell or any... They are not represented with absolute accuracy at all. They are very much characters in the drama of Vivian and Eliot's inner life. Do you see what I mean? So that's big artistic license there. No, for sure, because, I mean, I mean, when you watch it the first time and you see the credits roll... Because uh, Virginia Woolf isn't like, you know, hello, this is Virginia Woolf, how are you, no, Virginia Woolf? No, 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 exactly. She's, she's very much the, in the colour... Of the of the film, isn't she? She's not like you say. The film is about Tom and Viv. Exactly. Not about Tom and Viv meeting Virginia Woolf, but and Virginia Woolf. Don't forget, even in the title, it's called Tom and Viv. It's it's has a, in some ways a comic disrespectful. It's it's claims of false intimacy. It's about the inner relationship, not so much the outer celebrity. Yeah. Do, do you see what I mean? Or the historic. Monument that is T.S. Eliot. Well, I was going to start, that's something one of my notes I wrote when I was watching it is that um, knowing knowing this was about T.S. Eliot when I'm going into it, and, yeah. I, and, and for myself, this is the first time I'd seen it, I didn't see it first time round, so I was watching it this weekend. And um, it was interesting for me, obviously <laughs> being very familiar with who T.S. Eliot is, yeah. that I felt I was watching a film about Viv, of which yes. Tom was in. I mean, obviously, yeah. he's an important part of what is Viv. Yes. But it was interesting that it, it, it definitely felt like we were watching Viv's story. Yes, I think that's true. Yeah. I think that's true. Um, one of the other inspirations for me as filmmaker, obviously there was the play, but I drew on what was a relatively recent, although not that recent, but it, I think it had been published eight or ten years before, mm. but a wonderful biography by the terrific writer Peter Aykroyd of T.S. Eliot, an okay. unauthorized biography. T.S. Right. Eliot, who, you know, uh, uh, Peter Aykroyd, who's known for all his books on London, who wrote Hawksmoor, has written many wonderful novels. Of course, novels, yeah, of course, yeah. Wonder, absolutely wonderful writer. Mm. And also was a brilliant literary student and literary critic. And he wrote an unauthorized biography of Eliot. Like us, he was not allowed access to any of the poetry. That's kept very, very tight by the estate you know, by the T.S. Eliot estate, as often happens with artists, you know, the, the estate, the family, or whoever it may be, guards the flame very, very carefully, and until a century goes by, do you know what I mean? Is that right? I, did, I, did, I wasn't aware of that. I wasn't aware of that. competing thing. So, uh, of course, the story about Viv was not relished hugely by the second wife, Valerie, who is very much the keeper of the flame. And, uh -huh. and, and all honour to her, I don't know. Uh, uh, um, about Valerie. Clearly, she came later in his story, and people, you know, people mythologize the writers they love, and T.S. Eliot was very much mythologized in British culture, I believe, and those myths, you know, it's, it's up to the succeeding generations to look behind the mask and to, to um, in a way of getting closer and closer to the work. 
I love his poetry, by the way. I'm, I'm mm. an enormous admirer of T.S. Eliot's work. Uh, you know, like you, I'm sure, you know, I, I, I grew up with it as a student <clears throat> and um, I think he's one of the very great poets of the 20th century. But, but obviously, I mean, it, 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 it's hard to, I mean, it's a, it's a true thing that happened and, and what he did yes. was all, what, what he played a part in, in terms of Viv, was awful. But, and, you know, you, you can't remove it from the context of the time it happened. Exactly, and the way, and the, way the world understood what was happening with Viv—it's it's horrible, and we and we're horrified because thankfully the world's moved on. Yeah, but all good lives are full of scandal too. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is the thing: people are full of contradictions. I'm not sitting in judgment on T. S. Eliot. Or of course, yeah, that's I, what I'm, I'm saying. Looking, yeah. I'm looking at a marriage, and therefore the complexity behind any of the things that we value. Is a complex life, a lived, you know, how could we imagine, even without knowing anything about T.S. Eliot, about T.S. Eliot's life, to read his poetry is to encounter a man of huge spiritual struggles who fought with ideas of sterility and desolation and the sense of futility and strove for revelation and for a sense of redemption all his life, deep spiritual struggles that enabled him to connect with a generation who'd been through the Holocaust of the First World War mm. and who were unsentimental, angry, bitter, uh, and looked to poetry to reflect the qualities of their life and experience. And T.S. Eliot rose to that. Therefore, it didn't come out of nothing for him either. <laughs> That's no, no. what I'm saying. I yeah, think yeah, that, yeah. No, it's interesting. From from in in, in the um, I got the feeling that the uh, Viv's, Vivian's mother, yeah, was well, the, almost, wonderful, the wonderful Rosemary Harris. Rosemary Harris, yes. I felt that her role was like the role of the audience, like she was the sympathetic one that allowed that, that we were allowed to be, you know, towards Viv. Viv. If that makes sense. Yes, I think. Yes, I think in some ways that that that's true. I think she felt enormously guilty over her daughter, mm. um, as a lot of parents do. I mean, the other thing is that she felt guilty in a lot of other ways. I know there's a very odd uh, comparison to make. Well, it's not a comparison, but there is a parallel. The early Truffaut films, uh, mm. uh, um, the wonderful Francois Truffaut, and his early movies with Jean-Pierre Léo. Uh, and they were very semi-autobiographical. And he used to fall in love with a girl uh, and in many ways fall in love with her family almost more than the girl. <laughs> He'd split up with his girlfriend and his girlfriend would come home and find him sitting with the parents having dinner. <laughs> because he'd become a part of her life and actually his attraction to the girl was as much attraction to the family. Mm. And in a weird way, <clears throat> that happened with Elliot and the Hague Woods. He became very close to the family, and I think the family admired and liked him and wanted, you know, a, a respectability for Viv, and she, his mother and her mother wanted to save her from her problems, mm. and probably had the mindset of the time in which she went along with. A lot of women, you know, went along with the diagnoses that were given. I mean, yeah, I mean, and therefore felt guilty, and therefore only at the end could she begin to see how uh, and feel manipulated by T.S. Eliot. 
I was going to, I mean, as, as an aside, I don't think it was ever like an intention of the film, but I think it's a byproduct of, of the time it's set in and the people it's about is that, yeah, politically speaking, you see how little voice women have in this period, you know. Oh, it's, totally. It's kind of like you, you have a voice if you're allowed one. If you're not allowed one, you haven't got one. That's it. <laughs> no, I mean, I think, I think it, it, it will be, uh, in the future, we will discover more and more about the marriages and the relationships that many of the great artists who we've considered single and almost, as it were, unrelated, how much their relationships feed into their work. We mm. know that, for example, with Bertolt Brecht, how much the women had in his life had to do with a lot of his work. That's been a huge scandal and, and an ongoing controversy. Um, and I just think it's natural. You, you, you know, look at all of us. Our relationships are, you can't assess in a, in a long and a good and a rich marriage, you can't assess how much that contributes. Whether it's to the actual writing or not, it's to your inner life. So mm. that is a big contribution, unaccountable contribution to the work. One, one, of, one, of, my favorite, one of my favorite moments is probably quite, it's quite a simple one. It's that first bit where, where Viv has sort of shown herself to not just be a little outrageous and a bit vulgar, which is how we sort of start introducing the concept of something might be wrong with her when she's around the table with the family. Um, yeah. But when she's, I think it's after she's wrecked the, the hotel room in, in Brighton, I think it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, when William, when Tom, William Defoe, is walking around with, with the mother, yeah. and the mother just says, it's just one line, she just says, did she not tell you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I thought it was a really, it's a re it really hung heavy that because I almost think you, I think if I remember rightly, you just kind of you, you, that question hangs, and then we're out of there. We kind of cut and we're out because we're that's the big question, isn't it? Definitely. <laughs> and I think you know, Elliot, also the, all, all the questions around the the, the sexual, you know, that, the, the, the the repugnance and the revulsion uh, uh, that a, a highly puritanical young man, you know, <laughs> like mm. Elliot might have felt. A lot of this is speculation, and in a way, even the speculation is a bit scandalous. We don't know in detail mm. how these people cope with this, but given the issue, I think, um, I think Michael Hastings' in, insights into it um, are fascinating and valuable. They're not necessarily um, the final word by any means. <laughs> Nothing. Whenever you do biographical uh, work, it, it's, it's never... It cannot be the final word. How much of a person's life is lived in their heads? Without a doubt, yeah. I mean, we, Ninety percent of our lives are lived in our heads. So biography is so dependent on the written record, which is usually only a, a tiny percentage of what's lived. Well, let's let's look at look at the the, the role you, you had directly in the film, because I yeah. think and, and and you may want to be modest here, because because I, I don't know how I don't know how you answer this, but I'm, I, I, I am have modest. To... <laughs> No, 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 no. Stop oh, me if I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. It was uh, obviously reading. So we're looking back on this film now, sort of twenty yeah. years hence. And um, when it came out, it was a celebrated movie. Miranda yeah. Richardson nominated for a BAFTA, nominated for an Oscar. Rosemary yes, Harris. So was Rosemary. Yeah, I was say Rosemary as well. Yeah. yeah. So from from your point of view. Um, I guess starting with cast was casting. You were you were you were given Miranda and Rosemary, or were they cast well, as the role? Well, nothing's ever a given. No, okay. no, no, no. Uh, Miranda had done it. Uh, I think had had. I think she'd done it on radio. Okay. But if she hadn't done the stage play, I don't believe she may have done. I might be wrong about this. You might have it in your notes because I can't remember exactly 
But <clears throat> Miranda had, was certainly familiar with the piece, mm. and I wanted Miranda, definitely. Right. I, I, I admire her as an actress. I think she's one of our great actresses anyway. Indeed. And um, she, so I wanted Miranda. It, it was very difficult to cast T.S. Eliot. Okay. <clears throat> and I was uh, immensely uh, 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 thrilled to be able to to cast uh, Defoe, Willem Defoe. Mm. I, you know, I had to go over to New York to meet him and so on. And he's such, he's a unique American actor, again. He's a very serious-minded, thoughtful, intelligent. He's married to a brilliant director himself. His wife is one of the great avant-garde theatre directors in the States. The Worcester Group, you know, that, and, and that Willem is often a part of. So he's, a, you know, a highly cultivated, interesting guy. Mm. And he was, you know, to get him for this small indie movie was a, a, a great thing, and I was absolutely thrilled. And I, I, again, he approached the whole thing with such dedication. Um... And you know, really committed all the way, and you can see that in his performance. Um, it's a difficult role to play, a man who withholds all his emotions. It's not an easy role for Americans. Americans like doers, you know, they like can-do characters, and they don't. Yeah, like, yeah, he's a, he's, they a, he's like passive men. No, but, no, he's the least uh, alpha male character I've seen in a long time. Yeah, yeah, and and Willem committed completely to that. Mm. So, so from you, given that Rosemary and so on, you know, Rosemary is another actress I, I admired. I mean, she, you can look. You can. There's an old. There's a video. I think it must be DVD now of um, uh, um, uh, Uncle Vanya with Olivier and Michael Redgrave and Rosemary Harris in 1962 or 63. Wow. <laughs> you know, she's a wonderful actress. But, 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 so when you're on set directing these actors yeah. and obviously le leading to these performances that get, get acknowledged at the highest levels. Yeah. What, what, what are you doing as a director, do you think, to help them achieve those performances? What are you, tr what are, what are you trying to do, indeed? Do well, the first law of direction is like the law of medicine, is do no harm. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to write so that down. I'll write that down. Right? That's <laughs> it's, it's to try... I, I think... It's it's quite hard to explain this, but um, and I'll be I'm sure cack-handed in doing so. But you try to create the environment in which the actors can do their best, mm. and on a film set that can be very difficult, um, especially on an indie movie where you're. I mean, on most movies you're fighting time and you're fighting money and you're fighting circumstance. But on an indie movie it can be. It, can be acute, that the time pressures uh, are huge, which are equivalent to money pressures. And so things have to be done fairly quickly, but you cannot, you've got to shield your actors from that pressure. So that's on a very basic, as it were, primitive level. You've got to keep the act, you've got to try and keep those stresses away so the actors can do their work. But it's a much more intimate thing than that. Mm. A director has to know what the spine of the character is, or have a very, very good sense what the character in depth is really after, what they're really about, mm. what they live and die for, and then gauge the way that that, um, that, that journey uh, is followed in each of its little moments in the movie. And therefore, you are 
creating a sense of proportion and perspective. You are the intimate sounding board for the, the truthfulness of every moment and where it plays in the larger picture so that the sense of proportion is kept, so that you don't peak too soon, that you, all those sort of banal things that sound banal to say, but in the actual making of the movie is a very intimate process in which the actor looks to you as the director to, to say, have I got it? Did I hit it? Will mm. this give you the possibilities when you're in the cutting room? Because the director on a, on a movie has much more intimate control than on the stage, where you can control the rhythms of the film in the edit. And, and also, I guess, there's that, that, that peculiar thing where you don't shoot linear, whereas obviously a stage play starts exactly. and it finishes. A, a, whereas... a, a, absolutely. And therefore, this thing of... Uh, of not only being the sounding board for the truthfulness of each beat or each moment in the film, but of assessing this um, proportionality, you know, is this where we should be at this moment? Mm. Because the, the, the actor can't gauge how you are revealing them. In other words, by the nature of the shot and the way they are. I mean, the, the, the actors who are very familiar with film, Willem you know, knows where he's at, so did Miranda. She's aware of the camera, they are aware of the camera. Rosemary was less so, being, mm. at that time, much more of a stage actress. Of course, she's done a lot of movies since. Yeah. Okay, then. Well, look, um, I think we've covered quite a lot of ground there, um, and I've really enjoyed speaking to you about it. I should probably say at this point that um, Tom and Viv and Oscar are both out on the 14th of December? Yeah, Wild, I think they're both, yes, they both come out on the same day, Tom and Viv and yeah, Wild. So that, that, and that's available on Blu-ray and, and video on demand in various places for the first time ever. Yeah, I mean, I loved making those movies. They were mm. high points of my life, and uh, they were fantastic collaborations with everyone. I think most people who worked on those movies uh, look back as, as just, you know, wonder, we, you, you're going to be lucky in the business. You know, things have to come together. You don't know it at the time, but um, it was it was luck. We had a wonderful. The producers were great. They they nurtured the projects, and it just so happened. It just fell out that way, and and uh, the the actors came through. You know, we, we, as I say, we, we, we were lucky. And the great thing is, obviously, with them being with them being period pieces and, and biopics themselves, this. There, there genuinely is a whole new audience to enjoy being told these versions of events. Absolutely. I mean, I, I don't like the, the, the name biopic, and yet I have always loved I love biographical films if they're well done. I mean, because it has to be larger than just a story about a fact. Un, unless this story could survive without the people in them being famous, mm. that's in, a, in many ways a test of a good biographical script. If these people hadn't been famous, does the story about them still hold? And I think it does, both in Tom and Viv and Wilde. They are both fascinating stories about fascinating people. Well, I, th I think testimony to that is, is, like I say, when I watched it, I felt like, I, in the end, I felt like I was watching the film about Viv, of which T.S. Yeah, Eliot exactly. was, was, was it, one of the characters in it. Exactly. You don't have to know about literature or anything else, I think, to have... Act the, these movies despite being about what seem like more unusual subjects, are actually very accessible. They are dramas about human beings in relationship and the complexity of their lives. 
and, and it's, 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 it's interesting how, you know, I mean, as much as things have changed, yes. what we consider to be societal norms create a huge amount of pressure on everyone. You know, it's still, oh, oh, of course, of you course. Know, I mean, you see, you see that even more so uh, in um, in Wild, of course. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it, with Tom and Viv, uh, uh, absolutely. The, the the pressures of your own, t you know, it's a big struggle, isn't it? You've got to struggle. You have to struggle against. Um, you, you, a lot of your life is spending is spent fighting bad ideas. Mm. <laughs> the bad ideas of the past and the bad ideas of your contemporaries. But, but also, I mean, I think, I mean, ideas, you know. I, I, I mean, again, an interesting thing that, I, I, I mean, I guess this might come from where my, my mind is rather than where yeah. anybody making the film was, but there was also that, the sort of small political part of it, which was these people to the, I guess, to the working classes of the time would yeah. have considered to have no problems whatsoever. You know, oh, they, absolutely. They, absolutely. they swan through life, they did what they wanted, which to, to a large degree, because they had somewhere to live, because they could eat and they were never cold and probably enjoyed holidays, they were living the life of Riley. But yeah. they seemed to teeter on the edge of failure, and that's all relative, I suppose, but also financial ruin as well. It seemed that they were forever... That's, it, that's in the film, I think, that... Yeah. Life wasn't just sweet. It, it, they, they, had to, they had to act like it was because that's the, the problem, isn't it? Once you're in the world, yeah, you have to exist. I mean, I remember just recently that, that, that rather surreal article saying that I can't afford to live on £190,000 a year. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. you kind of think, why not? Yeah. <laughs> but, no, I mean, the, everything in life is relative, isn't it? Mm, and yeah. the, the thing is, we look back. I mean, even the Edwardians, let's say, that, you know, in the first... 15, 14 years of, of the century, so just, you know, all the years leading up to, but before the catastrophe of the First World War, mm. people kind of knew it was an Indian summer, you know, that it was a, a last hurrah, it was a, a beautiful, almost, um, uh, almost illusory time. Why? Because the world, everyone sensed that the world was changing. Mm. The aristocracy was losing its money. There were huge, the huge uh, powerhouse of America and of modern industry, the beginnings of the awareness of the huge, uh, the, of the rights of the working people, you know? The beginnings, the early beginnings of a welfare state and of the middle class being aware of the pressure from below. That world was changing. It would have changed even without the catastrophe for the First World War, but the First World War just exploded it and sent it, you know, sent it, to, as it were, to smithereens. But, so immediately following the First World War, the Jazz Age, a kind of neurotic, nutty, marvellous <laughs> explosion of energy. Do you know what I mean? No, no, so totally. These, so these things, you're right, you're right. You think, oh well, these are these are problems to have, you know, nice middle class people with some of them. You could live in 1920. You could still live if you had a private income of 50 quid a year. You could still live without mm. working. <clears throat> you know, labour was cheap. You know, you could you could if you if you had a little bit of money, you could afford a lot of servants. That all ended very soon after the First World War. And again, frightening, as a frightening thing, just just I'm just thinking about this as we're talking. You know, yeah. here we are, a hundred years later, yeah. and maybe the Indian summer of globalisation is is yeah. slowly coming to an end. Maybe and yeah. coming back to bite us, you know, in, in, in some way, shape, or form. You know, awesome. you yeah. know.
but that, that's another story. Um, but well, thank you very much, Brian, for uh, lending your thank time you. to the Britflix podcast. Hopefully, you've uh, enjoyed looking back over over a couple of films. I have. Thank you very much indeed. Yes, and good luck with the uh, with the, the digital release of it. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Stuart. Good to talk to you. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes, and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you.